Cricket matches between South Africa and the West Indies invariably involve drama. They also involve stories you've never even heard of. Here are some of them. Welcome to The Luke Alfred Show. I have 30 years of experience on the front lines of sports journalism, covering some of the biggest games in cricket, rugby, the FIFA World Cup, and even the Olympic Games. Come and join me as we learn about the greatest sports stories you've never heard. I'm Luke Alfred, and welcome to the show. When South Africa plays the West Indies at cricket, a theme is activated. It is difficult to say precisely what this theme is, although we all know it to be there. Is it perhaps the theme of the past? For the past still lingers in the cricket of both teams. What was the assertion of pride and power by Clive Lloyd's teams from the mid-1970s onwards, if not a long and at times complicated dialogue with the past? And what of the current West Indian teams? Is their very existence not to some small degree, shadowed by comparison with Lloyd's and later teams, a dialogue within a dialogue? Those shadows suggest a desire to break free of comparisons, but equally a recognition that the long-term excellence of Lloyd's and Viv Richards' teams is the benchmark by which successive West Indian teams should be judged. South Africa's cricket is similarly dogged by the past a past in which cricketers of darker-coloured skin could not play for their country, sometimes seeking opportunity elsewhere like Basil D'Oliveira. South African society, and life in general, is dogged by the past, sometimes uncomfortably so. The past is full of sin, slippery with wrong turnings, painful with omission and exclusion. The past trots along like a dog at our heels, always hungry, always demanding three square meals from the present. With their own backlog of economic iniquities and racial troubles, it is only natural that the West Indians should sometimes see the South Africans for not what they are, but for what they once were. There was a whiff of anger, even revenge, to some of Brian Lara's innings against South Africa in the mid-1990s without a doubt. Think of Lara's 111 against South Africa in the World Cup quarter-final in Karachi in 1996, an innings that was backlit by a kerfuffle with a nasty racial edge preceding the match. And let's not forget the infamous 1998-9 Test Series, the first ever between the teams in South Africa, where Lara and Hansi Cronier were the respective captains. A circumstance would have it, the first test at the Wanderers delivered the backward-looking spectacle of an all-white South African side against an all-black West Indies. Such a reluctance to embrace change by the largely white South African administrators, like Ali Bacher and his president at the time, Ray White, went beyond optics. Has nothing changed in five years of democracy in our country? asked an increasingly influential Black Caucus under Gerald Majola. Like all good questions, this one stung. Lacking any credible black player to push into the team, the selectors, Bacher was always a sort of ex-officio selector, although he'll deny it, crafted a compromise. Herschel Gibbs, a coloured, was chosen for the second test at St George's Park, Gibbs taking the place of Adam Bacher, Ali's nephew. This was Gibbs's eighth test, while the previous test was Bacher's 17th test. In a low-scoring Wanderers test won by South Africa, Bacher scored 1-6, and 
while in the St. George's Park test, Gibbs scored two and four, so it was all much of a muchness. The politicians and the Black Caucus appeared to be appeased with the change, at least temporarily. A couple of weeks later, White made a throwing down the gauntlet speech during the third test at Newlands. He told the assembled that the then United Cricket Board neither appreciated nor wanted interference on the principle of merit selection from either the government or the black administrators. These administrators, he intimated, were not only furthering a cause, they were advancing personal agendas. The speech raised a cheer at the time, but signalled the beginning of White's end. In a fine case of nominative determinism, White became the very epitome of what his name said he was. White's speech was akin to putting his hand in a dike, because the tides of history were surging with the anger of denial and exclusion going back 50, 60, 70 years. There was no ways he was going to be heard. There was no way he could be heard. It was impossible. At the same time, given what we now know, the unending rancor, controversy and corruption of the next 20 years in our cricket was only just beginning. In retrospect, White might have had a point. Here was the thin edge of the wedge. With Gibbs and not Bacher in the sight, Cronier's team went on to what was unfortunately dubbed in sections of the press as a 5-0 test whitewash. So concluded a fractious series, which started with the Windies refusing to board their connecting flight in London as the players went on strike for more money. Looking back, pretty much everyone was unhappy. The Windies were unhappy because they lost the series, while the South Africans were unhappy because they weren't fated enough for winning. Administrators like Bacher and White were unhappy because they were being challenged by a muscle-flexing new black elite, while the black elite were unhappy because, while they were growing in political stature, they weren't quite powerful enough to do things in the way that did expression to their world view. The only really happy person in this beleaguered season of unhappiness was Gibbs, which wasn't difficult given his carefree demeanour and high levels of everyday happiness anyway. He, in a way South Africans will instinctively understand, was happy happy. Gibbs visibly improved as an international cricketer as the summer progressed. In late January 1999, he made his debut ODI 100 against the West Indies, back at the very ground where he'd come in as Bacher's replacement for the second test, St. George's Park. Bacher, Adam that is, would have noted Gibbs's 100 with a complicated swirl of emotions. Bacher played in 13 ODIs, never scoring 100. He played in 19 tests all told, two more after being dropped after the first test against the West Indies, both against Zimbabwe, and his highest test score was 96. The first 96 was against Australia at Centurion. The second was against Pakistan in Sheikh Pura. Looking at Herschel's 100, Bacher would have been happy for Gibbs, but unhappy for himself. This is a subtle emotion, not confined to cricketers. I don't think a word has yet been invented to describe it. We have a certain way of saying things in South Africa, don't we? Perhaps Bacher was not so very happy. Cricket involving South Africa and the West Indies has always attracted drama, and not only in the post-apartheid age. In 1959, Frank Worrell, 
was scheduled to bring a full-strength West Indian team to South Africa to play a series of matches against local black, coloured and Indian opposition. Worrell hadn't yet captained his country officially, although he had been given the opportunity to do so in 1957, when he turned it down because he was studying at the time at Manchester University. The 1959 tour was arranged by A.M. Checker Jassat, the secretary of the SA Cricket Board of Control, better known as Sackbock. Plans for the arrival of Worrell's men were so far advanced that a tailor in Fordsburg, Johannesburg, made up a tie, blazer badge and bow tie in green and two shades of blue for the tourists to wear when they arrived. I'm not indulging in fancy. I've seen the artifacts with my own eyes, being taken round a shop in which they hang in a glass frame by the current proprietor of the shop, Muhammad Myatt, who inherited the curiosities from his uncle, the late Chummy Myatt, a former cricketer and administrator. The fact that a blazer badge, tie and bow tie were made up is revealing. It suggests that Worrell's team wouldn't have been travelling in official mufti, which means they would have been travelling without the West Indies' board's approval. They promised to be a fine side, containing Worrell as skipper, Everton Weeks, Clyde Walcott and a precocious young all-rounder by the name of Gary Sobers. To borrow from the words of a song we will hear more about shortly, the team also contained, quote, those two little pals of mine, Sonny Ramadan and Alf Valentine. But the tour never took place. Had it gone ahead, it would have embarrassed the West Indian board, because it would have shown how parochial the board's continued convention of choosing a white man to captain the team was. At the time of the proposed tour to South Africa, the official West Indies side was captained by the Jamaican Jerry Alexander, the wicketkeeper batsman, who was white. But Cheka Jassat wanted Worrell. So too did the West Indian players and the West Indian fans. Worrell was the expression of widely held popular belief that it was about time that the West Indian cricket side be captained by a black man. He was, if you like, an emancipation candidate. Worrell bringing a largely black side to apartheid South Africa would have caused all sorts of problems for the largely white official boards of both teams. The tour didn't happen for other reasons. The African National Congress elite, both inside of and outside of the country, pondered as to whether Worrell's men should be given their blessing. In the end, they seem to have refused to sanction the tour, although this is inferred rather than corroborated in the records. At least one of the reasons for not being able to answer why the ANC gave the tour a thumbs down is because the papers and correspondence that came along with the tie, bow tie and blazer badge were destroyed in flooding shortly before Chummy Myatt's death. Perhaps the ANC feared a loss of control. More charitably, they might have feared for the tourists' safety and their ability to protect them. Maybe and I'm indulging myself here, they feared Ramadan's wrongan and the havoc he and Valentine had wrecked on England in 1950. Between them on the famous 1950 tour of England, Ramadan and Valentine took 59 test wickets, helping the West Indies to a 3-1 test victory, their first ever in tests in England, including a thumping win at Lord's. It was a great moment for the islands, not only from a sporting point of view, but culturally and politically, contributing strongly to nationalist stirrings across the Caribbean. 
Lord Kitchener, the Calypso singer or Calypsonian, was on hand at Lord's to sing an impromptu Calypso or breezy satirical song as a group of West Indian fans danced across the outfield afterwards like a group of friends at a Mardi Gras. The MCC provided champagne to the West Indian dressing room, while the West Indian skipper, John Goddard, wanted more than bubbles. Test match cricket was a hard slog and he wanted hard tack, so he cracked open a case of his family's rum, Goddard's gold braid. When the West Indians retired to their base, the Kingsley Hotel in Bloomsbury, the hotel was draped with flags from various Caribbean islands. The celebration party spilled out onto the street. Ramadan, a retiring man and teetotal, celebrated the 326-run victory at Lord's with a ginger beer and a meal out with friends from Trinidad who were studying in London at the time. The victory was celebrated across the Caribbean, with public holidays called in Jamaica and Barbados. Many years later, Ramadan, the first cricketer of Indian descent to play for the West Indies, spoke in an interview with The Guardian of a dance being named after the victory in his native Trinidad. The cancellation of the Worrell tour to South Africa nine years later didn't excite as much passion as the debate about whether it should take place well in the first place. C.L.R. James, the cricket writer and historian, devotes a page and a half to it in his seminal book, Beyond Boundary. In these pages, he argues that the tour should most definitely go ahead, telling the reader that he is opposed to both Leary Constantine and Canon Collins, a prominent anti-apartheid cleric who believe the tour to South Africa is a bad idea. On the contrary, argues James, Worrell's team should without doubt travel to Africa. It can only do good. Quote, The tour would have worldwide publicity. The African cricketers and the African crowds would have made contact with world-famous cricketers who had played in England and Australia. There might have been incidents. So much the better. A pitiless light would have been thrown on the irrationality and stupidity of apartheid. Perhaps the explanation of the cancellation of the Worrell tour to South Africa in 1959 is straightforward. The organizers simply got cold feet. The practical and logistical challenges of the tour would have been considerable. So would the money needed to fly them out and transport them and accommodate them within the country. Would Worrell's team have received visas? Would their passports have been confiscated upon entry? Facilities for sack-bock-aligned cricketers at the time were poor. Would Cheka Jassat have been able to provide turf practice facilities and turf wickets? Apartheid was a philosophy of both a heavy hand and the fine print. Would Jassat and others have been able to tiptoe around the petty legislation? It's fascinating to wonder, if only briefly, what some of the match-ups, some of the contests within a contest would have looked like. How would Dolivera cope with the left-arm pace of a young Sobers, if Sobers the polymath bold pace at all? And how would Ahmed Didat have dealt with the spin twins? What field would Rodney Malumba have employed to Worrell? How would Amin Variawa have coped with Prior Jones, Ramadan's fellow Trinidadian who opened the bowling then for the West Indies? Was it not Variawa who, two years later, scored a century against an attack featuring the Springbok bowlers Jackie Botton, Ken Walter and Mike McCauley, 
who were all playing for a Johnny Weight eleven in a two-day game at Natalspreit, a ground that no longer exists. How would he have coped indeed? Looking back, Weight emerges as, if not a dyed-in-the-wool cricket Bolshevik, Worrell was sometimes referred to as a Bolshevik at the time, then more open-minded than most, the pale pink of the liberal rather than the deep crimson of the true red. Reference is made in James's book to Waite and Roy McLean being invited by the cricket writer E.W. Swanton to play in one of Swanton's itinerant teams in Barbados, Trinidad and Bermuda in March 1956. The South Africans didn't go, but clearly they'd indicated a willingness to go when Swanton met them when they toured England with Jack Cheatham's South African tourists in 1955. The West Indies board had concerns about their presence in Swanton's site and refused to give Swanton permission to include them in his party. James wrote letters to the board putting forward the white South Africans' case. Quote, I understood finally that the board was concerned that there might be incidents, either from the public or from a section of the press, James wrote in Beyond a Boundary. As a result, Waite and McLean's invitations were either quietly withdrawn or, we must assume, talks with Swanton about them being included in the party were killed off. A moment ago I spoke of the Calypsonian Lord Kitchener singing an impromptu calypso on the Lord's outfield after the West Indies victory there in 1950. This needs clarification. Lord Kitchener surely burst into a calypso on the final afternoon of the test at Lord's, but the famous song, Victory Test Match, with the chorus, Those Little Pals of Mine, Ramadan and Valentine, is widely attributed to Lord Beginner, Lord Kitchener's colleague and fellow Calypsonian. Both lords travelled to England from the West Indies in 1948 on the liner The Empire Windrush, formerly a German troopship and one of the spoils of the Second World War. The passengers on the former troopship became known as the Windrush Generation, the first wave of West Indian immigrants to be domiciled in Great Britain as a result of the 1948 Nationality Act many of them settling in the south of London in suburbs like Brixton and Clapham. My favourite lines in Victory Test Match are about Alan Ray, the Jamaican left-hander who scored 106 in the first innings at Lords in 1950. He saw that the king was waiting to see, so he gave him a century, perfectly sums up Ray's peerless sense of occasion. It's unlikely that Ray would have travelled to South Africa with Worrell because he played the last of his 15 tests in 1953. The Calypsonians wouldn't have travelled to South Africa either, but they surely would have watched matters with a keen eye, their wit never far away from proceedings. Calypso was a way of making sense of things, a sort of singing in newspaper, shall we say. An all-black West Indian team playing against black, coloured and Indian cricketers in a country that kept the races apart to the advantage of the whites, now that would have been a thing worth singing about. Lord Kitchener, Lord Beginner, Lord Woodbine and Mighty Bomber would surely have had a calypso or two to sing about that. They might have even sung about the West Indians' natty dreads, their blazer badge, their tie and their bow tie.